Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Hello, guests. This is Kyle Brost with the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm excited today to have uh, a phenomenal guest, a unique guest who's going to talk to us about some some powerful messages and get into some of the challenges that the individuals face, um, as well as just that we face as a society. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Tawana Burroughs. Uh, she's the president of Coach Diversity Institute, is a best-selling author, a trainer, professional certified coach based in Washington, D.C. Um, her mission is to empower diverse communities through executive coaching, um, and her role is to test, retest, and ultimately drive the organization's overarching vision, strategy, tactical direction. Her team delivers training and curriculum for coaches and customized diversity and leadership programs, does a ton in this space, really Really focused on elevating the ability of all people to pursue their goals, their dreams, their passions, and organizations to thrive through diversity and uh, inclusion efforts. So, Dr. Tawana, welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction. Oh, Kyle, I'm so glad to be with you today. Likewise, we are thrilled to have you. Um, so, tell us. I mean, I gave this kind of precursor, this, this quick uh, uh, intro, but tell us a little bit about you so we can jump in. So Kyle, my, um, just a brief background, I want to first start off with the fact that I am a mother of two. I have what I call bookends. My oldest um, is will be 23 this year, and my youngest um, is eight. So I have bookends. Oh, wow. I have a 14-year gap, right? So I have this amazing uh, uh, life where my entire professional um, journey, I've had these amazing little people that I've kind of taken on the journey with me and exposing them to the world. And so I, no matter what I do, I always look for ways how to assign legacy support, wisdom and advice to my children. So everything that I do contributes to a greater uh, future, to a better community so that they have a place in the world and where they feel valued and supported. And so everything I've ever done um, has contributed not only for my own professional development and my own personal growth, but it's also keeping them in mind along the way. Well, I love that. And I can uh, definitely relate to that. So I have three um, children. I have uh, three boys actually between the ages of four and seven. Um, and that message resonates with me because a lot of what uh, my focus is, is, is similar in that I'm trying to elevate people's experience in life through systems change, through um, equity, through efforts to, to give people access to the things that they need. And it always goes back to wanting my children to have those opportunities and experiences as well. So that message resonates strongly with me. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And congratulations on being able to do that. It's, a, it's an important part that we do as individual contributors to our communities. Absolutely. So you're passionate about the work that you do. And where does that passion come from? Kyle, it is so funny because, you know, whenever I'm asked that question, um, 
I want to, sometimes I want to force myself to look for another answer just in case this isn't the answer, right? Like I, it's like, there's gotta be something else that drove me along the way. But I got to tell you, it was my grandfather. Um, my grandfather was a sharecropper in, uh, he grew up in South Carolina and then moved to North Carolina. But as a farmer and a sharecropper, he was just a few generations from slavery. He um, had to drop out of um, elementary school in the third grade um, to participate in helping the family farm to put food on the table. So my grandfather never finished school. My grandfather was um, not literate. And so he became the person, the one person in my life that constantly made sure that I checked in with what I was doing in the world, how I was contributing, how I was showing up in the world. Obviously, education meant more to him because he didn't have an opportunity to um, obtain an education. He was uh, on the job training. Everything he learned was this, through the skill of his hands. And ironically, he learned to build his farm. Um, similar to you and your background in Wyoming, um, growing up with a, a, a family of farmers, my grandfather being a farmer, my grandmother assisted my grandfather in building a business using the farm and the food and the livestock from the farm to help build an incredible family of children. Um, and so I'm inspired by him and his work ethic. And that is the only thing that ever comes to mind whenever I'm asked that question. I, I don't think you have to look for another answer. I think that, <laughs> I mean, and, and as you mentioned it, that's something that's very, very personal to me. Um, my grandfather was, uh, was the epitome of, of, pursuing something that you're passionate about at all costs. And as you mentioned, uh, he too was a farmer and I look to him on a regular basis to say uh, that was what he was passionate about. It's what he pursued um, regardless of the outcomes or outputs. It's what he always dreamed of doing. Um, and so I, I think that it's a, a beautiful sentiment. I think it's a, a beautiful driver for passion. And I love that, that you have that. Um, so I, I don't see any reason to have to look for, for something outside <laughs> of that. And, and, you know, I think guests have probably heard me say this because it is one of my all time favorite, uh, quotes or sentiments. And it is that we should appreciate the old folks because they give us a sure knowledge that things can be endured. And I think about that. I think about, you know, people like your grandfather, people like my grandfather who went through, um, incredible hardships. And then you look at them and you say, but they, but they pursued, you know, they persisted, they, uh, persevered. So as we enter these stages of life where we have to face challenges, we can look to those people as a guide mark that says they give us a, a sure knowledge that whatever we're facing can be endured. And it sounds like he is a, a perfect light for you in that, in that way. Absolutely. I love that. Um, you know, depreciating the old folks, you know, and that's my grandmother is who's in her mid nineties. Um, thank God she's still with us, but it's a constant reminder um, that there is a, a level of gratitude and thankfulness to having um, having to experience um, life with them as my mentors and just just my conscious um, constantly helping me with, with wisdom and advice. So yes, you're right. So I love that we share that that similarity, um, but the reality is that there are some differences too, um, mm -hmm. because 
you know, my family grew up in very, uh, a very homogenous environment in Wyoming um, where, you know, and, and we were white um, and we didn't, you know, we weren't a few uh, years or a couple of generations removed from slavery. That was never something that was part of my, my history. Um, How does that shape the difference between you and me? Absolutely. Um, And I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a huge, that's a huge observation on your part. And I want to honor that we, the difference is, is that I was on the East coast of the United States um, in the Southern States, which is, we're talking the Jim Crow South. Mm -hmm. Um, So Jim Crow South means major segregation. My grandfather and my father both had to have separate facilities, separate everything. Um, My mother, even though she lived in DC, in Washington, DC, she still um, had the effects of Jim Crow South where there was separate um, facilities and separate everything, right? Where the inequality was just, again, was a part of who they were. um, And that was a part of my experience um, growing up. I was born in 1970, just a few years after Martin Luther King was assassinated. So there are so many things that are just within an arm's reach for me, um, community-wise. So yes, um, that is the one thing that's different is that we had to navigate um, through our histories differently, but the resilience and the ability to um, maintain a certain level of pride and dignity and strength um, is equal. Yeah. And I think that's such an important message. I, I think it's really crucial to have these conversations where mm-hmm. people who have different histories, different experiences, um, who have gone there, you know, families have gone through different experiences, can acknowledge the differences while also coming to a place where we recognize that there are some similarities and some shared challenges to life that exist for all of us. Um, even though there may be privilege and there may be barriers in various elements or aspects of, of how we live our lives. Mm-hmm. And right. I think, but, but I think we struggle for some reason to have those, those two conversations in the same place, the conversation that says, you know what, there are some things that I've experienced that are because I am a, a white male. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some exper- things that you've experienced because you're a, a woman of color um, but there are also some things that just as humans, we share. That's right. Absolutely. Why do you think we struggle with that as a society to have those two conversations in the same place? Oh, there's the battle between um, who should be the victim. Um, you know, that's my first reaction to that question, to be honest with you, because not too often I ask that. So it's like, let's discuss um, how long do we want to hold on to victimhood? How long do we want to um, assign blame? How long do we want people to just get over it because we're no longer in that generation? Why do we kind of continue to bring up or rehash the things of the past that are so, uh, that have scarred um, history or that are buried over time? Why do we continue to bring those things up? Because yes, they are rooted in pain, we don't need to, we need to be able to move forward. We need to have a different conversation, but I'm, I am an advocate of learning from the past, obviously in order for you to make better decisions in the future. And I think that when we all can understand that there is no harm, there's no shame, there's no blame and having a conversation about what we have overcome as a country, as a society, if we can have that conversation, then healing can occur. 
It's the lack of that conversation. It's the lack of wanting to have the conversation that continues to have people to feel hurt and victimized and for ignored. Because as you know, um, people have several basic needs and one of them is to be heard and to be listened to and understood, right? So mm -hmm. when you continue to try to silence people who want to give voice to something that matters to them, not being able to talk in the right environment where there is no shame, there is no blame, there is no pointing fingers, that brings value, that's valuable. So for those who are open to do that, so much more can happen. For those who are closed to do that because they are afraid that they would be blamed or they have to own the sins of their fathers, you know, because of that fear, they, will, they don't want to have the conversation. And I think that's the mission of what we do in Coach Diversity is that we have a new approach to the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation. It is not the tra traditional conversation. It's not the traditional approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's a unique approach to where we do not go through the process of shaming and blaming. We equip all of our students with these skills, the coaching skill set and the coach approach to diversity inclusion that allows people to be more open to understanding that it does not matter what your views are. All of us have the need and desire to be heard and understood. So whether you agree or disagree does not matter. The fact that you're listening for the intent to understand is important to me. Yeah, well, in the line that you said at the very beginning, uh, where you said it's a battle between who should be the victim. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a, a, a such an interesting one because I sit in this place and again, I'm just coming from where I'm at. Um, but I sit in this place where, and you also said, you know, that we have people who don't want to be blamed. And I sit in this place where I, I feel like I have a responsibility as a, as a, you know, privileged white male, um, I have a responsibility to try and understand the world that I, that I coexist in and what led to these things. And I have a responsibility to try to be an actor in what happens moving forward while also feeling that same element that you touched on, which is that I don't want to be blamed for things that I feel like were precursors to me, um, mm -hmm. while also reaping the benefits of those things in reality. Mm -hmm. And it's such a tough place to sit and try to figure out, um, how do we do that in a way that's respectful and honors other people's life experiences? Right. And unfortunately, the civil rights movement had a different model. They were they were in a movement during the time when things were in motion. Right. They were literally living and experiencing the racism and the um, the the um, inequality in that movement, right? So we have evolved, okay? Not many years, but we have still evolved to a point of where there has been some progress, right? And so that we can all be um, proud of um, as a society. However, what's happening is, is that some of the members of any community of color still have a need to be heard. And so it always comes out as if you are blaming the person you're sitting in front of because this may have been the first time they've expressed their pain. It may have been the first time they've ever had an opportunity to articulate with clarity what is the root of the hurt that has been experienced in their families for generations. Some of the people of um, these communities of color have never experienced any hardship at all, right? So they can't relate, but for those who have generational first year, um, first uh, year college graduates, you know, first year, um, um, first year born in the United States, you know, there's so much that we have to, on our backs. 
but this could have been the first time we talked about it. And so it sounds on the receiving end like you are the person that needs to be accountable. And that is not the case. The only thing you're doing is listening to what's being said. You have no reason to respond as if you have an answer. There's no reason to take that position. But so often people who are on the other side, there's so much pain wrapped up in the conversation that it just comes out as if it's an attack on the individual in front of them. And that's really not the intent. But there's, without learning and understanding, it's very difficult to translate that. And that's why it gets so confusing. And that's why so many um, of um, the white community of America seems to be fearful of being able to sit down. But luckily we've had so much progress and we have moved the needle when it comes to having more or um, uh, conversations that have been more productive than they have um, in the past. But I can tell you that, you know, one of the things that I really specialize in and I really work hard to do is making sure I teach people um, two major skills. One, um, being a great listener and two, learning to ask better questions. Because I believe if I, I help you to improve your listening, then you will seek to understand. If I help you um, ask better questions, then it is not an issue of attack and it's not an issue of blame. It's an issue of curiosity. And then you can ask better questions that then in turn build a better conversation. Sometimes solution comes out of those conversations. Other times they do not. But if so, if, it, if, it, if the situation happens to bring out some type of action, some type of plan of action, that's wonderful. That's a bonus. But most of the time, it's just so that people can be understood to a point of feeling valued and included um, and respected. And so many generations before my, my generation have not felt respected. And I think that's the hang up. Yeah, this might come across as a leading question. I, I don't intend it that way. But um, so given who I am, and I, I keep saying this, I don't want to keep hashing it, but I want to acknowledge that, you know, I sit in a position of authority within a business. I'm the CEO. I'm also a white male. How do I listen? What's, what's my role in this process? Right. So it, it like you listen to anyone else that you care about. Like you have you like the same way you listen to anyone else that you have invested interest in. If it's if it's a conversation on business, you have an invested interest in the client because you want to close the deal. So you lean in and you ask questions that will allow you to close the deal or to build better relationships with that client. The same is true for no matter who's across the table. The same skill applies. The same level of curiosity is important. What what you do differently um, when you when we filter through diversity is that we we get a, we become fearful. We become fearful and, we, and defensive and we want to protect ourselves because we, like I said earlier, don't want to be blamed and we don't want to have to take on the 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 challenges and frustrations and the issues that have been circling around that existed before we were even born. So that's the the, the issue. How do you how do you continue to maintain the same equal opportunity in conversation and equal opportunity and respect the same way you approach business, the same way you approach your friends and your family or any other colleague that you want to work with from the community you're comfortable with? How do you do that across diverse lines? So I so personally, I can grab onto that and, and it makes sense. And the, the first line Saul answered the question for me that I do it the same way I would anybody else that I have a vest, vested interest in. 
What about for the person who says, um, I want to have a vested interest, but I also feel like I'm putting um, something at risk. I'm also, I feel like, okay, I want to have a vested interest in this community. I want to have a vested interest in this individual, but I also feel like I'm putting my personal opportunity at risk, or I'm putting um, my future at risk, or they feel like they're trying to balance those two things. Right. And so, you know, that's, you know, that's interesting because, you know, Kyle, it's very rare that you hear someone speak from that position. And I appreciate you mentioning that because that's a very, that's very wise on your part. So yes, if you decide that you're going to step out of your comfort zone and invest in something that's very different or outside of the norm, it is perfectly understandable why you see that as taking a risk and that something will suffer because you made the decision to do something different. It is perfectly understandable why you would see it that way. However, how can you reframe that thought and think of it as a gain and not as a loss? And that you're adding value to something, you're bringing something to the table, you're adding something new, something valuable to the table versus feeling like there's going to be a loss or some type of deficit if you choose to, right? So it is perspective. So it's at least like adding a new friend, you know, or, or inviting yourself to be a part of a new professional organization. If you join another professional club, you're adding value to who you are as a professional. Where is the risk in that? Unless the two professional organizations are competitors, where is the risk? There is no risk. There's added value. So there is, there is a way to view it once you change your perspective on the idea of risk and loss. Yeah. I have thought about this, and this is taking it from a, a slightly different standpoint, but you also mentioned it, this idea of competing organizations or competitiveness. And, I, and I've wondered to myself, at what level is the competitiveness um, an asset and what level is competitive competitiveness um, destroying opportunity? Mm, that's an interesting way. So tell me what comes to mind when you say that. Well, I think about, so the most practical example is prior to um, acquiring and running the organization that I run now, which does a lot of work in the social sector, um, I ran a corporate strategy firm. Mm -hmm. And so I was a strategist, uh, you know, I have 20 Fortune 500 clients um, dealing in corporate organizational strategy. And the question is um, often around competitive advantage. Um, and it's often around beating someone else in the marketplace, either beating them to a market or beating them in the market. And it drives this very, uh, if, if they're winning, I'm losing mentality. So I, I experienced that and there was a big shift that led to me moving to the social sector. And I, and I try to bridge that gap now between the social sector and the for-profit sector. Um, but I came to the social sector and the the perspective is different. So it's around partnerships rather than someone always being the competitor and how do I beat them? The conversation is often around how do we partner and collaborate to do these things? Um, and so it's just been, I don't know that it's a fully formed idea or concept in my mind, but it's been this question of at what level does competition actually help us versus hurt us? No, that's it. You know, I thank you for explaining that because I totally agree with you. Um, yes, I too come from that environment um, where it is about the competitive um, advantage and, the, and going beyond the competitive edge so that you can stay ahead um, of your competition. 
And depending on where you are in your life and what your personal goals and values are, your take on it will be very different. So you decided to transition away from it because you saw that partnership resonated better with you and your value structure than being competitive and feeling very um, uh, individual minds, having an individual mindset, having a holistic versus individualistic mindset. So I agree with you. I understand that. And I think it's, it's, there's a place for all of it and there's no one better than the other. But I will say that for those people who transition to a place of different learning and understanding and wanting to see diff, uh, change, um, they choose to change and they choose to assign their learning and their relationships in that form of partnership. And they move from being in that competitive environment to a partnering environment because it feeds them and their value system. All of us have different value structures. And I think it's fair to say that we can all operate and exist in our own worlds. Um, and I can respect the guy who's on the hunt every day and he, you know, he's going to eat what he kills. And I just, ask that no one would assign any blame to him because he's chosen that path, right? That we respect it and we honor it because there's a place for everyone in the world. So for me, I respect and honor that competitive um, um, nature. I am. I also have a competitive nature, but it's just at a, in a different way. So my partnership or my decision to create a company like Coach Diversity Institute was a 10 year journey, an evolution of every management consultancy I've ever had. But my idea was not to assign to be better than the next guy. It was for me to say what's missing in the market and what's needed based on, on what I'm observing and how can I solve this problem and what can I put out in the market that will help one, help me feel like I'm a key contributor and I'm social, I'm a social change agent. So how am I going to feed that need that I have? Um, and also respond to the market because there's, we're talking about a global market. It's huge. It's room for all of us, but that's my perspective, the way I go at it. Right. So I mm -hmm. can do well and I can have that abundant mindset because I know that I will always have and obtain versus someone else who feels like there's a lack and they have to go after it and they have to stay number one. Room for both of us, just my decision not to be that way. Yeah. Well, and, and the idea of an abundant mindset, I think, is the, the crux there. So I have been in situations with massive organizations where the focus has literally shifted from how can we create value to how can we get someone else to lose and, uh, and that is terrible for corporate strategy because corporate strategy has to be based on some element of creating value because that's mm -hmm. what helps an organization design itself. It's what helps mm -hmm. create a theory of, of strategy, a theory of change. Um, and so, but I've actually seen those conversations shift among really intelligent, skilled leaders to shift away from where can value be created and an abundance mindset to how can we get someone else to lose, which, uh, which is a waste of resources because you're not just not creating value, you're actually end up destroying value in the marketplace. And so I do agree 100% with what you're saying. And I love the idea of this abundance mindset. How do we get people both in a kind of corporate strategy space, but also on a very personal level in terms of diversity and inclusion, how do we get people to develop that abundance mindset on a very personal level that somebody else doesn't have to lose in order for me to win? Right. And I tell my students this all the time that I am called to 
uh, this body of water that I have defined as the, to be the size of a lake, right? That I've evolved um, everything that I've created, um, all all my all the things I've I've designed and created in this world has been birth and has is thriving within this lake body of water. Now, if I decided that I'm going to take everything that I have in this lake, which is significant, it's abundant, it's it's thriving, it makes sense, and I want to shift outside of this lake and move into a larger body of water like the ocean, how can I, how, what's my success rate? How will I survive? Because what worked for me in the lake may not work in the ocean. So I have submitted to understanding that I've been called to this lake and that my desire to nurture and grow the ecosystem within that lake is what I've been called to do. However, if anyone within that lake that has been impacted by the work that I have done, because I am abundant in this lake, then they would then move out of this lake and they would then transfer into the ocean and then they would do what they feel they're called to do. If they move into it to the ocean, they may decide to go to a different lake. But again, it's, it's the um, the symbolic uh, ripple effect, right? Where mm -hmm. I know who I am. I know what I'm called to do. I am solid and grounded in my calling and my purpose. Nothing is going to distract me away from what I believe I am called to do. And so abundance exists when you know without a doubt what you are called to change and that you without a doubt cannot be swayed and or persuaded away from that. And so abundance exists because I know who I am and what I need to do on a daily basis. And I do it within this lake. If you shift me out of that, I would have to redesign myself. I would have to figure out another way to exist. It would be uncomfortable for a season. I may lose time and I may not be as impactful. I may not be as strong in the ocean. I may be a guppy compared to the whales or the, or the shark that are out there. And I'm not sure if I'm going to survive in the same way that I did in this lake. So that's how I'm able to do it. That's how I keep it in perspective. And that's how I win every day. Hmm. Uh, so one of the things that you touched on there um, actually is, goes perfectly in line with a, a program I run called the Art of Strategic Reaction. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Art of Strategic Reaction is based on a very simple principle, and it's that we make really bad decisions because we lose sight of our goal. We lose sight of our purpose. Mm -hmm. So uh, we get into an environment that becomes emotional, and those emotions take us away from our goals, and we start to make choices and decisions that... Um, actually have nothing to do with our long-term long-term goals. They have something to do with a very short-term aspiration. I want to uh, make you look bad. I want to prove that I'm right. I want to do something else. And those are very short-term things that aren't meeting or producing my long-term goals. And so people make these, these poor decisions when they lose sight in a moment of something long-term, they lose that connection. And so the way to make better decisions all of the time, like you said, the way that I win every day is by always connecting every moment to a long-term goal and staying mm -hmm. focused on that thing, not letting some piece of emotion, some momentary experience take you away from the goals that you've set for yourself, the purpose that you have. That's how right. do you stay focused on that purpose? So you say that that's, you know, how you win every day is by staying so focused on that purpose. How do you do it? 
Mm -hmm. So I'm very intentional, obviously. I, I, the focus is always to affect change in the community that I'm called to serve and identify that community, the community as, you know, um, people of color and anyone who's assigned to who have no fear in navigating in any community of color, right? So whether you're from the majority or the minority, you have no fear and you don't leave money on the table because you're not able to negotiate across diverse lines. So I specialize in staying and building that community of thought leaders and who are like-minded and like-hearted in that way, right? So I'm very specific mm -hmm. about that. But I also know that um, I am. I, I know that I'm a leader and I know as a futurist, it's my position to always know what's ahead, right? But not so far outside of my target knowing who I am specifically called to serve and saying from this particular group, let's just use, let's just narrow it down for, for example, say it's women of color between the ages of uh, 35 and 45 who live in major cities um, who are um, looking to transition into a senior leadership position, right? That's, let's just say that was my community. No matter what is going on, they are always my target, right? So I build community and I look for ways to nurture them and develop and grow with them. And along the way, I stay super micro focused on the gaps with their skills, the gaps in in the in in um, society, what's hindering them, what's supporting them, what's potentially going to affect them in the future. Um, and I and I just continue to triangulate and learning and and knowledge and staying focused on that in that special way. Now, to do anything outside of that would be, I, I'm totally skilled to do almost anything else. I've lived a number of different lives professionally. All of everything I've, there, I've ever done is dovetailed together and it contributes succinctly one to the other. But for me to stay narrowly focused on my purpose, um, I have to scale to serve more people, but those people still have to exist in that, that lake. They can't yeah. exist outside that lake. Yeah. And I will maximize the heck out of that water. <laughs> that lake is going to be rich and is going to be full of everything that that community needs, period. And that's yeah. where I'm going to stay. And I'm going to make it amazing. And it's going to be, you know, built to serve and built to move them until they don't need that ecosystem anymore and then they move on and do other things outside of that and that that's like seeds being planted outside of it but for me that's so rewarding to know that they have been fulfilled and they have received everything they needed through the ecosystem that was built in that lake. so i think it's a really powerful message i think that there are a lot of people that are more focused on um collecting the harvest than they are planting the seeds that's right that's right um, and one of the things that you're talking about there is something that we talk about in, uh, again, I'm not trying to pitch this program, but that we talk about in the Art of Strategic Reaction, which is injecting intention. So mm. you said I'm very intentional. And we talk a, a lot in the program about injecting the right intention at the right moment and focusing on what that intention is versus injecting an intention that's driven by something else, by some external factor versus injecting an attention that's focused on purpose and goals. Um, and there's always this balance there between when you're injecting these intentions and you're trying to plant the seeds, there's always this balance of how powerful is the idea or the effort with how predictable are the results. Absolutely. Um, 
and you have to find that balance, right? You can do something that's very, very predictable, but is very, uh, but lacks power, um, mm-hmm. or you can do something that's very, very unpredictable, but has the potential for great power and trying to find what that balance is. Mm-hmm. I, I want to I go back to something you said a while ago, actually. Uh, and you mentioned this idea of asking really good questions. Mm-hmm. And so I have two questions, and I agree with that. I think questions are one of the greatest learning tools and knowing how to ask good questions is a powerful, powerful element of building relationships, identifying the right information, um, being strategic. So I have two questions for you. The first one is, what is one of your go-to questions to elicit insight? And the second question is, how do you formulate and ask powerful questions? So I'm going to go backwards because my brain works that way. Um, So how do I formulate um, all my questions? Most of them are always going to be open-ended. I, I, I am, I'm a scientist, I'm a technologist. So as a, my undergraduate degree is in chemistry and mathematics. So I'm a problem solver naturally. However, as a scientist, even as a chemist, when you're doing experiments, you, you're, you're trying and always going to have that open-ended you know, um, like what's the possibility of this experiment? What can possibly happen? What can possibly go wrong? What can possibly go right, right? So that that is a part of who I am. So I'm always going to formulate my questions that are open-ended. It's always going to invite a lot of dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I am I will annoy people that are super close to me because I'm always going to ask questions. And sometimes they don't want to answer all my questions, <laughs> but I can't help <laughs> it. It's like, it's a, it's a habit at this point. So yeah. I'm always going to have the opening questions. Now, there are times when I would say that there is no real go-to powerful question. There isn't one that I always ask or I tend to default to because in the moment, like having this this interview with you, Kyle, is there's so many questions I would love to ask you if I could switch it around and just begin to interview you. New, so many wonderful questions have come to mind this, this entire time. So it's always when I'm in the moment and my curiosity, just like you, as you're asking questions along this way, you're, th- these questions aren't predictable. You're going off your gut. You're going off your curiosity. Your intuition is literally leading you through this interview. So that same formula is exactly how I approach all my clients, all my students, any work that I do in the world. I allow my intuition and and that level of curiosity just guide along, just just stay open. Yeah. Well, I love that. And I I think people, I think you hit on that, you know, something on the head there in terms of curiosity. I think people who um, are not asking good questions probably have one of two things happening. One, either they're simply not curious or they're not invested in being curious. Or two, they actually are curious, but they're afraid to express that curiosity. They're afraid Mm -hmm. of of perceived risks in being curious and asking Mm -hmm. what is really on their mind. Right, right. So here's the thing. What's the worst thing that can happen if you ask the question? Yeah. What's the worst thing that can happen? I mean, they're not going to get blood out of you. You know what I mean? It's like you can't, you can't, you don't have to give up anything. You know, you really don't lose anything unless you choose to give it up. Um, So there really, really isn't anything to lose when you're wanting to just get more insight or to just 
naturally just want to gain more wisdom. And it's how you frame the question as well. So let's be clear. Sometimes our society has a habit of teaching us how to ask questions that are framed with judgment constantly. Everything, you know, we ask questions when we start off with the word why. Why did you choose to do that? Why um, are you going to go to that school? Why? I mean, when you ask the word, a question with the, starting with the word why, it automatically causes someone to feel that they need to defend and or provide a reason for their decision. That is the worst way to start a question. Mm. So how we approach um, people and how we present dialogue has everything to do with the how it's packaged. So we have to check our judgments. We have to check, you know, the questions that we're asking. What's the true nature of the reason why you're even asking this question? Because if, if I feel like you, what you're asking me is hurtful, judgmental, is causing me to defend something that I feel like I don't need to defend, like parenting, you know, like you as parents, you know this, we're constantly asking questions around why, because we want to know is there a reason why you didn't make a better decision? Is there a reason why you didn't listen to me? So we sound like parents throughout society. Even social media is full of parental types of judgmental questions. Mm, yeah. Causing everyone to just get more defensive and constantly being argumentative and locking up and always feeling like they need, they're being blamed and or feeling they're not good enough or inadequate. So I would submit for all your listeners to consider when the next time they're in dialogue and they're wanting to be more curious, check how you are presenting your next best question because it could be full of judgment and it could be a, in, packaged in a way that will cause someone to feel different than you may intend. So consider packaging the questions differently, but never leave with why. That's a, that's really interesting. So we teach, uh, or I teach, um, just for the audience, three different types of questions. And you talked about actually all three of them. The first, and, and this may sound very intuitive to some folks, but some folks just haven't had exposure to this. But the first type of question is a close-ended question, which um, you know gives a response of yes, no. It's a, it's the, limits the number of responses that can come in. You know. Did you accomplish this? Yes or no? Potentially, maybe it's a close-ended question. And then um, we have these open-ended questions, which you talked about in terms of curiosity and getting insight, which enable someone to respond in a very, very broad way. However, they perceive the question because it's open-ended, they can respond however they want. And then there are these questions that sit in the middle, which we refer to as framed open-ended questions. So I can ask uh, a very open-ended question and I can ask, how are you? And you can answer that in a number of ways, mm-hmm. or I can frame that question and I can say, um, you know, how is your morning going or mm-hmm. how was your lunch? And, I, and now I'm narrowing the response to be framed about something. The one thing that we don't talk about that you touched on though is 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 the potential to uh, why, whether intentionally or unintentionally, the potential to frame something in a a way that makes people defensive mm-hmm. um, because of how you framed the question. And that's mm-hmm. an interesting dynamic, mm-hmm. right? And again, because most people listen with the intent to respond um, and not to understand, they're constantly looking for the moment when the person takes a breath or stops talking so they can just get their next point out. 
So we are constantly full of judgment. We're constantly full of, of wanting to have their point made in an argument as if we're in a quarter law every day. And so, so many of us were, we were taught that we were raised in that dynamic, um, our education system, uh, as far as the school systems is concerned, they teach you how to um, defend and argue. Um, but that is not always the best way to approach, you know, and to get results, different results at that, right? Yeah. So I definitely would submit for your audience to consider that because we've been taught so long to communicate a certain way, that it's possible that it's time to un, un not to unlearn, but to change and or learn something new that can supplement and support a different outcome. And that's, you know, and again, for, for me, it was learning the coaching skill set and now training leaders um, and change agents of our community, whether they're in Fortune 500 and or in large nonprofits, helping them obtain the skill set that allows them to take the coach approach to leadership and the coach approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion, the coach approach to um, parenting, the coach approach to, um, to, to leading and if you're in the, in the clergy. It's, it's using that skill and laying it on top of so much that we've already learned along the way and polishing it off so we have a better outcome. Yeah, I love that. Uh, we give, so as a very practical way to do this, um, we give a three to one rule when uh, when you find yourself in a situation where you're literally sitting on the edge of your seat, just waiting for a, a pause in the conversation so that you can jump in, you know, mm -hmm. you're, to your point, you're listening to respond, not listening to listen. When you find yourself in that position where you're waiting for the next opportunity to jump in and make your statement, we, uh, we give the three to one rule, which says when you find that moment that you're trying to jump in, mm -hmm. you have to ask three questions to every one statement. Um, and it's just a tool. It's a mechanism to get people to pause, mm -hmm. to sit back a moment and actually listen more versus jumping in and destroying the opportunity to gain insight. And so for the audience that's sitting there, the next time, test this out, the next time that you're in a conversation and you're listening to respond, you're sitting on the edge of your seat, ready to jump into the conversation, give yourself the three to one rule. So ask three questions to every one comment uh, and see how the conversation goes when you do that. I, I, promise that you'll find it to be a more fruitful and effective conversation than if you constantly jump in to respond in the middle of those. Right. And you know, Kai, I would like to add to that, um, that if you find that it's extremely difficult for you to ask three questions for everyone, or even two questions for one, then I would submit for you to consider that it's an issue of patience. And it's also an issue where we're constantly um, taught that we have to have the answer and we have to solve for other people. We're constantly taught to give advice. We're constantly taught to tell people what to do, that we have the answer. There's a better way that you know the better way. And so there's an issue of patience and, and there's an issue that you need to look at how much you rush through life because you want a quick answer or you want to hurry up and get to the end. I want to hurry up and get through this moment because I have something else better to do. So three to one, would it require you to be more patient? And patience is not something that people want to practice. Patience yeah. is not something that we're taught 
um, we're taught as children, but along the way, it's unlearned because we get in the grind and the hustle of our professional lives. And, you know, you have to be home by five, dinner has to be cooked by 6.30, kids have to be in bed by eight. I mean, there's so many things that cause us to push and press that we forget how important it is to sometimes pause and sometimes be patient and sometimes listen and get to the same outcome and have a more fulfilling and enriching experience along the way. I love it. So um, I want you to tell us a little bit about your programs, but one thing I want to highlight um, as we kind of get close to the end here is for anybody who's listening and thinks to themselves, well, this conversation that has kind of centered on on inclusion and diversity and equity and those things um, doesn't really fit me. I would say that that conversation applies to everyone. And one of the things that you've done a great job of pulling us back to are the real world personal situations that we face. So even if you're not in an organization where there's this conversation of diversity, equity, inclusion, you still have those, you can still take and apply those principles to your family life, to your relationships, to any experience that you're having in life, it's not just a, an organizational social effort. It is a mindset around how you treat and interact with other people in your own family relationships, in your own professional relationships, in any situation that you're put into. So don't disregard the conversation just because you may not see yourself in some um, arbitrary situation. Uh, take what's being told and heard and ask how you can apply it in your own uh, relationships and life experience. Now, can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, obviously you have dropped some some really profound insights and I love this conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the programs that you offer and potentially uh, the call for young men? Okay. So Coach Diversity Institute is an is an International Coach Federation accredited training program. So we certify um, individual contributors as well as um, internal coaches or service providers within organizations, we certify them in the coaching skill set. That's what our primary business area is. We also provide coaches to companies who need a team of um, executive coaches to provide coaching, individual coaching, confidential services to any size organization. So we do both of those primarily. The other things that we do as far as um, supporting the uh, community development is the work that we do to empower diversity communities. So most often people assign diversity to color. Um, very similar to what you said a minute ago, Kyle, that the summary is that if we realize that diversity is not just about color, that we have labeled it to being a color thing, that diversity exists in so many other layers that we totally ignore sometimes, um, you know, that gender and color are the only two that we typically pay attention to because it's the one that's most talked about, but there's so many other types of diversity, right? So for me, um, there's, and within uh, Coach Diversity, we have publication, um, Two publications. One, um, my senior vice president, um, Gloria Chan, wrote a book called Colorful, um, Colorful Leadership. Um, and we we also have a book called The Call for Young Men. It's an anthology of stories for young men um, between the ages of 14 and 21 to talk about character accountability, love, and leadership. And this is an anthology as an example of, of contributing to, to um, a diverse population in a community of color, that these young men of color 
who come from, um, who have a disadvantage of some sort, whether they are um, in and out of juvenile detention centers and or um, challenged by the lack of resources where they can't get to college. This anthology project was just one example of how we stay connected to community. And it's a, it's a collection of stories told by men who journeyed through so many challenges of their own life and became extremely successful on the other side of all those, all the resistance and the, 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 um, the obstacles that come from um, whatever urban community and or other community of lack could potentially have, right? So this anthology is actually finding itself inside of um, juvenile detention centers. Um, the book is given to young men that are incarcerated. It's also given to um, young men who are in school who sometimes get frustrated and want to need more encouragement and more um, uh, support and understanding that someone else has journeyed through what you've gone through and in some cases worse and they were still able to make it and so this is just examples of staying committed to community and staying committed to helping to empower communities uh, again not just around color but just around keeping people feeling valued and supported and heard i love it i love the work that you're doing um thank you so much for joining us um again for the audience who's listening uh, these principles and ideas apply across experiences. And to your very point, diversity exists on so many different layers that uh, that there's application to all of us in whatever experiences we're having in life. So thank you for sharing that message. Thank you for pushing us to be more engaged as communities, for pushing us to better understand and respect each other and where we're coming from. Um, thanks for sharing all of those insights and passion with us today. Thank you, Kyle. I really enjoyed this um, this interview. It's very rare that we get to go off the target a bit and, and really have an enriching conversation. So thank you so much for allowing that to happen. Absolutely. It was truly, uh, truly enjoyable. Um, folks, thank you for joining us for the Art of Strategic Reaction. Thank you, uh, Dr. Tawana Burroughs, for all of your insights. Uh, this has been one of the uh, deepest, most passionate conversations that we've had. One that I think we may need to get you back on and continue this conversation in the future. Awesome. I would love to do it. All right, everyone. Thanks again for joining the Art of Strategic Reaction. I will catch you on the next episode.